0: Bankless
1: Nation, it's a debate time debating, I think, the most interesting topic in crypto today is the merge overhyped. We get the bear case and the bull case for the merge. We try to answer the question on whether it's overhyped or not. Today, my role is a bit different in Bankless. Today, I am the moderator. I'm the host of this debate. We have David Hoffman, who, of course, is taking the bull position. And we also have Jordy Alexander, I'll well introduce later who is taking the bear position. He thinks the uh, merch is overhyped, while David thinks it's probably still underhyped or appropriately hyped. And we will get into all of that. Um, I think the market still might not understand the merch. It's going in both directions. And so hopefully this episode gives you some clarity on that. I'm going to introduce our debaters in just a minute, but a few quick announcements. All right, David, we're going to get to it. Um, so, we're about to introduce, I guess, I no one needs to introduce you, but um, I, I want to introduce uh, Jordy Alexander in a minute. He is the uh, merge bear in this episode today, and he put an excellent post out in Bankless on why he thinks the merge is overhyped. Jordy, welcome to Bankless. How are you doing? Good to be here. I'm excited. Uh, David, you, of course, are the Merge uh, bull, and you are bullish on the Merge. Uh, and you are also known to host a podcast in the space <laughs> that is also well-known to be very bullish on Ethereum and the Merge. Uh, welcome to the show, David.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um,
1: I, I got to ask, maybe before we get in, just a little chit-chat, David. Are, are you a little bit worried about this debate? I mean, the last time we had Jordy on a Bankless podcast for a debate the coin that he was bearish on (laughs) went to zero (laughs) in six weeks all right so uh are you a little bit worried about this one
2: uh well you know data point of one um however I, i will say that uh the sobriety that it that one needed in order to be like bearish luna in the time of complete luna just the the narrative tailwinds behind Luna were the strongest was was hard and took a very smart and and per, uh, rational person to do so. Uh and so I think maybe I'm perhaps the person drinking the Kool-Aid this time and now it's my <laughs> turn to have to, have to go up against Jordy. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> uh J- Jordy, just real quick before we get in. Um what was kind of like the aftermath because I don't think we've we've talked to you much about this but the aftermath after that debate and kind of the you know the, the crash of of luna did you hear from anyone just
0: uh what were the kind of the months after that event like for you um yeah obviously there were six weeks so between that time there was quite a big run-up in luna i mean it went up, up another 50 percent, i think like to 120 125 it really had like it's uh it's like an uh you know next surge there um i i got involved a little bit in trying to understand Uh, you know, the exact mechanics of how Luna might be leaking, because I kind of felt intuitively like it was leaking value. Um, Sadly, I didn't really, because there was so much other stuff going on, I didn't spend the time to really understand exactly what the the switch, the kill switch was. I did that work as it was falling apart. And then I'm like, okay, now I really need to, like, just not sleep the whole night, stay up the whole night, and really try to pinpoint, like, why is this happening? And I did, but it was too late. Like, it was falling apart at, at that point. But I realized that um, that design can never work uh, ever because it basically uh, people can just like arbitrage Luna and get cheap UST. So they can mint UST forever just by kind of buying low, selling high, Luna back and forth. So that means that no matter what, like it was doomed to fail, like it it was going to go to zero at some point.
1: David and I have um, I talked about that episode a little bit, and it was really funny, sort of um, as the episode was uh, being live streamed, and in the days after, there was a lot of vitriol from uh, the the lunatic community, I would say, about that episode. A lot of negativity, negative comments. And then what you see is like a couple months later, the comments begin to change. Mm-hmm. And there's there start to be like appreciative thank you comments, like thank you for airing both sides of this argument. I should have listened a bit more rationally to Jordy's take on it. I'm wondering if you got any, uh, thank yous in the aftermath. Cause, cause I know post that episode, uh, <laughs> there was a lot of anger from a community who felt like maybe you maybe bankless writ at large was kind of just, you know, trying to, uh, trying to knock down, uh,
0: Luna. And we were just kind of haters of, um, something that was innovative and new. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like, there was a lot of that. It wasn't surprising or new to me. I mean, I kind of had my first go around with the Olympus Dow people back, and it was like over like a thousand dollars, and um, they kind of crashed soon after. And I saw a lot of the same thing. Hey, where
2: is Jordy just this Reaper meme, just going and knocking on doors, <laughs> yeah.
0: dude? You're in trouble, David.
2: That's what I'm trying to tell you.
0: <laughs> um, you know, it's it's kind of like something that has opened my eyes a lot about know the power of community when things are going well where they're you know it's just kind of i don't want to say eth is, is showing that as well now but when things are going well there can be like a huge momentum um and maybe like less critical thinking and then when things are badly like people are trying to like reevaluate and see like you know what they missed this is uh an
1: amazing setup for the episode that we're a bit about to have because i think the most valuable part of debates on bankless specifically is uh, to bust bubbles and to inject some of that critical thinking into some of our theses so we're hopeful to do that and we're going to get to the debate in just a minute but before we do we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible all right guys we are back trying to answer the question debate the topic is the merge overhyped and of course i'm talking about the merge of ethereum between proof of work and proof of stake uh the entrance of ultrasound money maybe uh Jordy has some questions about that and he is taking the case for why the merge is overhyped he's taking the bear case on the merge and trying to deflate some bubbles Jordy Alexander of course is the CIO of Salini Capital which is a multi-strategy trading firm it's also a liquidity provider specializing in crypto assets he's also a seasoned debater he came on to make the case that Luna was on shaky ground I uh, did that six weeks before Luna then collapsed to, to zero. Jordy, welcome back to Bankless. It's great to have you. It's good to be here, guys. Uh, of course, David Hoffman is a leader of the Bankless movement. He's the <laughs> co-founder of a media studio of the same name. He's a well-known writer. He's also appeared on this podcast more than a few times. He's also known to be bullish on ETH. David, you ready for this one?
2: I am indeed ready. I've been preparing for this one for a long time, Ryan.
1: All right, well, let's start. Yes, you have <laughs> indeed for your whole crypto career, I think. <laughs> um, let's start with Jordy with, uh, kind of the preamble and the question, uh, Jordy, you wrote a fantastic uh, post that we actually published in Bankless that kind of goes through why you think the merge is overhyped, but why don't you start there with the preamble? We'll get into the details of all of your reasons and rationale for why it's overhyped, but give us the, the big picture. Uh, why is the merge overhyped in your mind? What are the the main reasons or the main things that are overhyped about it?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, people have different time horizons, but I think there's reasons on the short, medium, and long term to potentially be like concerned about certain parts of the narrative. On the short term, I think people assume that, you know, once this merge happens, price will just continue to flow up because it's happened. But in reality, I think very strongly that we will see the usual sell the rumor, uh, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news um, for many reasons, including the fact that it is such a huge catalyst that people are really looking forward to it. The the price action on it is going to happen now as people are like expecting it. After it's done, you know, in two months time, people are going to be moving on to the next narrative and the next thing, as they always do. And so I think that's that's like something to be mindful of in the short term. In the medium term, what really concerns me is the fact that you know ETH as an asset is supposed to be this like yield-bearing, you know, uh, base interest rate financial instrument. I'm very concerned about gas fees. I don't think they're going to recover to the levels that they were, and that creates an unsustainably. Uh, expectation for yield being high is, is is just not sustainable um so i've kind of done a lot of work looking at you know what yields are actually going to be once things settle down and it's 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 less than treasuries so it's it's not very exciting compared to like you know traditional market riskless rates and then lastly on the long run um you know my thesis on eth is that it needs to find what it is is it this is it that is it money is it you know, is it like global computer? Is it financial sector? It has to kind of pick and choose. You know, Vitalik wants to say that, you know, the community just wants to do everything. So we'll just be all of the above. And I I have a belief that unless it chooses and kind of focuses on one thing, it will get eaten up by other cryptos that want to specialize on, on a certain, uh, you know, theme. Uh, this is
1: great. So if I were to summarize, you've got short, medium, and long-term concerns related to to the merge. But then, you know, Ethereum writ large. In the in the short run, you think it's maybe priced in. Like the narrative is out there, the narrative is overhyped, and maybe it's maybe it's kind of priced in. In the medium term, you're concerned about the expectation around yields. You think they might be less than some people uh, think it is. And over the long run, you're concerned with the um, the value proposition of of Ethereum as a network. I think that's one of your criticisms is that the the bulls and the overhypers uh, think of this world as as one chain to rule them all. Um, we'll get into all of those in just a minute. I want to hear from our uh, bull before we do. So David, just give us kind of your preamble. Uh, don't have to address all of Jordy's points, but um, wh- where do you contend the most with uh, some of like the 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 arguments that Jordy has raised, both in his written form and uh, just now on on this episode.
2: Yeah, there's two ways to go. There's like the what is the fundamental bull case for the merge, and why is it not priced in? And then there's like specifically what about Jordy's arguments? I think are are wrong. Uh, and and so I'll kind of do a, a little bit of a hybrid on that. Um, uh, fundamentally, like the whole like triple point happening aspect of of ethereum and the ethereum and the ether merge i think is like the most understated thing about this uh and so like really what, what that means is like you know the bitcoiners are always perp- uh, perpetually bullish on the happening right and the, they claim that like once a happening happens it destines a bull market to happen there afterwards and it's because of the structural supply flows that we all know how press to be super bullish on uh and like the, it's called the triple halving because we get three of them all at once. Uh, and so I think it, it follows is that if you and a decent um, a proportion of the crypto industry does believe this is that, uh, you know, if Bitcoin does cause bull markets, if the Bitcoin halving does cause bull markets like two years later, you would expect the triple halving to cause like either a three times larger bull market or an equivalent bull market three times faster or some somewhere in the, the, between between those two ends of the spectrum, just because of the raw sheer magnitude of how bullish it is as a fundamental catalyst. And like the reason, the overarching reason why I will say it's not priced in is that we have not yet seen as an industry collectively, some bullish catalyst of this magnitude, never before seen since 2000 uh, and like uh, 2009, 2010, when Bitcoin was created. So as a market, we don't have a history of understanding how bullish this thing can become. We haven't seen something so bullish yet. So we don't know how to price it in. And therefore, I'm claiming overall that because it's the most bullish event in crypto history, it's just generally not priced in uh, because we haven't had to like deal with it yet. Uh, that would be my main argument, I would say. All
1: right, that's great. All right, Let's go into this in a bit more detail. And uh, Jordy, I think you have some fine grained arguments that, that you've written uh, in your post and uh, including some fantastic memes, by the way. And I got to ask, with this uh, with this meme in general, where this is kind of like the ETH merger, if you guys have seen that that meme template uh, of somebody who who thinks that, you know, none of this is priced in and then ETH price is going to infinity. You kind of do a play on that in your post. I got to ask, is this a picture of David we're looking at right here, Jordy? <laughs> <laughs> is he a merger?
0: No, no, it is not. It is a generic <laughs> merge or it is not this specific merge or
1: <laughs> well. Can you go over maybe your four points here that you raised? And then we will um we will hit the first one. So we'll hit them one by one. What are kind of the the ways that um mergers or super merge bulls kind of mm-hmm. over over inflate expectations here? I think there are four of them.
0: Yeah, I mean to get to David's you know main point that um you know, this type of thing has never happened before. I mean, that's true from a crypto aspect, but what I find consistently with the crypto communities, they, well, now they're starting to respect it more, but historically they have not respected macro enough. They haven't understood that it's just a subset of like the global kind of liquidity system and the liquidity flows that are occurring. And it it is a really bad time to have a monumental kind of, uh, you know, supply event. And no matter how, how many halvings it is, even if it was like you know ten halvings. If you're about to enter like a recession and everyone's tightening and and taking the liquidity out of the system, yes, there there can be there can be some idiosyncratic flows and and kind of uh, price pressure and action. But ultimately, you know, the Bitcoin uh, halving, the last one happened at a time where we were really entering an unprecedented like liquidity flow. I mean, that was like really. Once once and that's like once a lifetime. The previous one, you know, 2017, that was like the first like real mainstream adoption kind of curve where you know people were were like rushing in. So using those examples, I think kind of ignores the fact that we're entering a very different monetary regime where, you know, right now people are not getting stimulus checks to like get into ETH. They're they're not having like extra money like laying around that they need to like kind of FOMO. If anything, FOMO is kind of like reducing. And we're seeing that in traditional markets as well.
1: Maybe uh maybe I'll allow David to kind of um you know rebut that if you have anything to say. So Jordy Jordy's saying macro essentially dominates. Uh and so you know the merger deflationary aspect doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. What would you say to that?
2: Yeah, I think that's a super fair take. Uh, I I think that macro, like no matter how bullish the Ethereum merge is, like, you know, macro is something completely uh, irrelevant to that, right? Um, uh, Like it it has its own uh, machinations and plans for all markets, regardless of crypto markets or not. And I think the frame of mind that I always really come for as like somebody who holds all of my net worth in like crypto assets is that like I'm kind of already exposed to crypto no matter what and so this is coming from that perspective of I'm already I've already committed to ride the crypto wave and many others in the crypto industry are like maybe like there there's like the perspective of like are you a US dollar bull or are you really playing the market inside of crypto and are you trying to find the asset that beats the rest of the market in that short-term time frame and so I'm totally ready to concede that I don't have the same level of conviction on the ether US dollar price in macro terms than I do on things like the ETH BTC ratio or the ETH avalanche ratio or the ETH, you know, a Solana ratio. Uh because that like that really just closes out like it closes out a factor that I'm not in control of. And this is why like my current position is actually short Bitcoin long ether, which takes the dollar trade out of that move. Uh and so I will yes, I will agree that like I, I have tons of like conviction about the merge trade. And a lot of that conviction comes from being Ether being related to the rest of the crypto asset market.
1: So David is willing to, like Atlas, take all of the crypto risk on his shoulders. But within that, he thinks that ETH will outperform
0: other equivalent crypto assets. What do you think about that take, Jordy? Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's generally fair. I mean, we have seen already a large move, though, in ETH BTC for example, at the lows 05 0.055, Now it's it's kind of hit at some point. Obviously today is a little bit of an aberration, but it's been rallying in the previous days and it's gone up, you know, over fifty percent. Um, so I would say you know that's played out and and that was fair. Uh, I do want to acknowledge that I am bullish the supply squeeze. I do think it doubles the value of ETH compared to what it would be in a proof of work state. So you know that that is significant. Um, I think that that's playing out. It's, it has been playing out quite a bit already. Um, I will I will again like reiterate though, like I strongly as many years of, of trading, I believe that once the event is in the back mirror instead of in the forward mirror, as a trader, right now, if eth goes down, I'm very comfortable buying the dip. Why? Because I know that you know, they know, and everybody knows that this thing is happening in a couple of weeks. And so like it has the attention and it kind of like it presents defense mechanism, like a preventive floor, like no one's really going to let it drop. So as a trader, I'm being very aggressive. I'm like, I can buy ETH dips aggressively, as I have been doing. You know, I'm not like short ETH, I'm long ETH here. Um, I am short at like, you know, over 2000, given, given this environment. And I'll talk about like why that specific price later on but i do think that there is an element of you know going forward in 2 weeks time people will start wondering how much btc needs to catch up and so even having an eth btc trade where like btc has been lagging there could be like a catch up phase so i'm i'm really not convinced how eth btc is going to do in october for example
1: jordi i read um you part of your post and i think one of the points was um around eth being maybe the eth merge being kind of a narrative play uh essentially and and your take that hey like everyone knows about this narrative they've known about it for a long time can you get into that uh criticism that you have and a reason why uh the merge is overhyped do you think it's it's mainly a narrative play and maybe that narrative has already been priced in talk about that
0: i mean there's a few narratives i mean we, we should go into the different narratives because you know people are looking at it from different aspects. In terms of the Ethereum community, of course, they're already all in, right? Like that, that buying has, has happened, like they're they're waiting and they're, you know, they have their ETH in their hands and maybe staked ETH as well, um, and that's fine. Um, they should kind of know what to expect in terms of yields, in, term, in terms of price action, in terms of other things. But, you know, as a general uh, narrative, that's okay. If you look at like institutional narratives about yield, especially, you know, this is gonna bring the institutions in because they're gonna get yield. I think that's just a completely wrong narrative, uh, very misplaced. And the kind of thing that maybe kind of, you hear an echo chamber, but I wanna like really kind of look at some of these narratives that I disagree with a lot. And that's one, the other one is like the deflationary meme. It was a good meme. It looked like it might be deflationary. My estimates are that it will definitely not be deflationary. That's not a big deal. I don't think deflationary is a big deal, but as using it, that as like a meme, when it's not correct, you know, people should not have that expectation and then it doesn't happen. I know you guys and many other people have been talking about the deflationary meme. I just don't think that the math adds up that there, there will not be deflation on a yearly basis. So
1: we've got, um, you know, three different pieces there that, uh, Jordi just, just laid out or, th- or three reasons to rationale. And I want to get you to, to respond to that. And i mean, the first. Um, I heard was that, hey, like ETH people know about this, the permabulls, they've already bought in. So just discount that entirely. Uh, and secondly, the institutions are coming and kind of the internet bond and yield on ETH, that's way overplayed. Uh, and then thirdly, um, the whole ultrasound money narrative with ETH being deflationary, that's not actually going to be the case is what Jordy's saying. David, I want to get you to respond to uh, to those critiques.
2: Yeah, uh, the first one that, you know, that it's... it's uh... It, it falls into the category of like, there's a bullish catalyst. The traders trade around that catalyst. And because of that happens, it like prices out that catalyst saying, it's more or less saying like, all catalysts get front run by the market, right? Which is generally like more or less true to like some degree. Uh, you know, if there's something bullish, then like people will front run this. That's how markets work. It's basically like, I feel like it's a, an articulation of the efficient market hypothesis, right? It's like, there's never and but like it doesn't leave room for... It's just like a catch all argument saying like it's a fun it's a bullish catalyst, therefore it's priced in. Uh, and and yes, I, and I think this really is about like time frames, right? Like could I see ether dumping after the merge because it's a sell, the news event? Two weeks, four weeks, six weeks afterwards. Yes, I could see ether being in the red for six weeks afterwards. eight weeks afterwards, too. Like maybe we go up to sixteen weeks afterwards and it's still in the red versus where it was in at the post of the merge. But I think really the merge trade is about like every week after the merge, the likelihood that ether flips green increases. And maybe that's not very likely on week week one or two or up to 20, but like beyond like 20 weeks, we're starting the likelihood of ether becoming green because of the fundamentals of the merge, it goes in ether's favor. And so like, yes, traders can always front run the trade and get ahead of it and then they can dump post the news. And maybe it wasn't, maybe it was priced in, people already front, front ran this. But it's really about after the merge, and like, uh, and with really the like this ETH BTC trade that I'm on, and a few other people are on, is like, you you win this trade by holding it, not by like playing the merge. Like you, you hold it through the volatility, and so like yes, I could totally see Ether dumping, but it always like the merge fundamentally puts the tailwinds at Ether's back. So if it is a sell the news event, you just wait, and then all of a sudden, it, eventually like the fundamentals catch up to it. And then I'll also go back to what I said said earlier, is that like, it's still so fundamentally bullish that we haven't had an experience, the market hasn't had an experience like this. And markets learn through experiences. Like markets are shared collective memories of all market participants. Uh, and so like this is like markets learn through having like a scar in it. And so like people that got blown up on leverage are likely not to take leverage in their lives because of like the early 2022. Um, people that trade uh, the Bitcoin halving will learn that the Bitcoin halving is fundamentally bullish in a two year frame. And, but people haven't been able to learn the data about the merge because you only merge once. And like this one time event that will never occur again in history and has never occurred before in before history is not something that the market has learned. And so if you combine that with with the fact that like, okay, maybe, and even if you are still right, and like people front ran this, that you still ultimately win by waiting out through those short-term volatility, that's, I'll kind of say that this, the merge isn't priced in, right? Because it'll only not be priced in for a short amount of time, short to medium amount of time post-merge. Um, so that that's the first argument. I could go on to the first two, but Jordi, in the in the uh, vein of being categorized about our conversations, I'll, uh, I want to give you a moment to respond.
0: Um, I mean, you you talk about kind of waiting for the fundamentals and waiting for those to kick in. I mean, I agree that the supply change is a big deal. Um, if it was happening in a bull market where we were like burning a ton of ETH every day and like NFTs were going crazy and, and you have the merge. I mean, there would just be like supply squeeze and, and that's like totally true. That, I don't expect that to happen now because of what's happening on chain, which is like the activity is very low. If we get like another surge of activity in a year, two years, yes, it will amplify the fact that there is like no supply. <laughs> um, that is equally true for Bitcoin. Once some of the like Bitcoin supply overhangs that are kind of, you know, the Mount Gox and the, the different kind of coins that are expected to dump into the market at some point, Similarly, you can have a supply squeeze. I think for both currencies, long-term, I am very bullish because they they have a lot of uh, the mind share of the space and both of them can eventually lead to a supply squeeze where the long-term holders have all the coins. There's only so many coins. Even if you say, you know, ETH is not going to be deflationary and it's going to be 122 million, let's say, uh, whatever Justin Drake's, I think that you know, that's his like most recent, he's kind of updated after I called him out on, on his last estimate, I think 122 and and you know 21 million bitcoin in the long run once there's like global adoption both those assets will have a scarcity squeeze at some point like that is for sure going to happen but in the short run sell news medium run concerns about gas long run there is a lot of potential for eth still but i think it needs to kind of get its narrative right um so i mean i don't disagree with a lot of what you're saying i just don't know that the timeline is is going to happen right away Uh, But yeah, I'm I'm interested to hear your take on uh, if you've kind of done any work on looking at the yields and this internet bond, and if you actually believe, you actually believe that institutions, you know, you have a bank or you have whatever balance sheet on some institution, are they going to say, I want to get my ETH yield, forget this dollar stuff? Like, do you you think that's going to be the case?
2: Certainly not immediately. Um, I think it's going to be one of those slow rolls into an eventual crescendo, um, and that could be um, a multi-year long process. Um, and again, like the conversation of the ETH trade, the ETH merge trade is like always a, a, a timeline conversation, right? Like, do I think that institutions will, one's like, are, are institutions waiting on the sidelines with like cash in hand, just like waiting for the merge to happen? No, no, they're not doing that. Um, uh, I think slowly one institution will do it. Like one market m- uh, money manager who's privy to bankless and the Ethereum merge. Maybe they are. And then like that, you know, folds into two, folds into three, but that's a, that's a multi that'll be like throughout slowly throughout 2024. uh, And like, it'll kind of feel and look like in my mind, a normal crypto bull market in the sense that like, there's like the quiet year where prices are discreetly up only. And then there's the next year after that, where people kind of figure it out and it turns into a mania. Uh, I feel like that kind of catalyst is where I'm seeing how institutions play in is like, some institutions, smart institutions are like, oh, you can get yield on this thing. And it's not only is it real yield, but it's also not correlated to the dollar. Uh, and so, uh, yes, it's volatile, but like you can take on that risk. Um, we can talk about that later. Uh, I,
1: think, I think one thing that Jordy, you said in your post though, is that the ethmerge bulls are vastly overestimating the actual yield that hmm. will be received by the quote unquote meme internet bond. Uh, can you talk about that criticism for a minute? And then maybe David could respond.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in general, like in all these pieces, I, I do spend a lot of time on research and I try to compare, like, you know, I, I go to the source. I don't just kind of rely on some internet resource and I, you know, copy paste it from there. I really look at the actual numbers and I have gone quite in depth in this. And it has been quite disappointing to see how overinflated this specific narrative on the yield is. And I would say like out of all the things that have, research this is the one that really stood out to me as what are the, what, what's going on? Here? <laughs> like something's really wrong. Um, there is no free lunch. I would say that in terms of yield, we've seen this in crypto many times promises of high yield. People think that somehow you know eth being uh, you know a more legitimate play than a lot of the other you know USTs or whatever else you want to, you want to look at that promises high yield, they just thought that yeah, like this is let's take it at face value because it's eth you know it's it's wholesome um sadly even in the case of eth there is no there is no free lunch there is no like low yield there will there will no there will not be any like low yield um the yield will be like close to zero basically like uh, you know even after a year it will it will really dilute we need to understand a lot of where the yield meme came from people initially were not staking eth because they were first risking that Illiquidity, liquidity, because you have to wait many years until the merge happens, until the Shanghai fork happens. So people do not want to stake. The amount of staked ETH was so small and the pool that was given to them was substantial that they have been generating a decent amount of yield. When you flip the switch and you give block rewards to people who are staking, which they're not getting the block rewards right now. Similarly, you know, six months ago, a year ago, those block rewards looked like they might be a big deal because there was a lot of gas tips being paid. There were a lot of um, MEV kind of uh, you know plays going on, all, all, that, all that sort of uh, financial front running um, that was happening. And people put one and, one and one together. They thought that there was always gonna be only 10% of supply staked. And they thought there's always gonna be like this huge amount of tips being paid. They put them together and they got these like 10 to 20% yields. In reality, over time, there will be a lot of staked ETH. In fact, if yields are significant, there will be even more because people will be more incentivized to stake ETH. And they will have to like share uh, that ETH between like more and more stakers, more validators. And uh, as we're also seeing like, you know, generally like tips are, are, are a lot lower now. So when you put one and one together, you end up with two, 2% yield. That's what I see. And out of that 2% yield, some of it is gonna be inflation because like i said eth will not be deflationary unless like some crazy like um you know bull market happens again and so part of that 2% will be inflation so the real yield will be like in the one ish percent range wow so that's incredible i just want to recap so right now
1: when you stake your eth uh you are receiving a nominal yield not necessarily a real yield of like you know 4.5% something to that effect and you probably discount the real yield by the the issuance right um, a lot of uh, merge hypers, uh, merge bulls, think that the yields post merge are going up. Some have even said into the double digit range. So we're talking between four and you know ten percent plus in terms of yield. And what you just said, Jordy, is that's a load of BS. We're actually talking about a real yield of around the one percent mark. Is this what you're saying?
0: Correct. There, there, There is like a three month period right after the merge where I expect there to be a long queue for validators that will only allow about 4 million youth to join, maybe 6 million, depending on kind of how, how exactly it pays out. Like uh, over the first few months, it will be more and more allowed in. Uh, but let's let's discount those first months because first of all, you'll have to wait in queue. So you won't get it right away. If you buy staked eth like Lido, you will be diluting all the other Lido holders So that's like a different story. We don't need to talk about LIDO specifically. Just talking about stake teeth in general. First of all, it would be hard to get a validator in because it would be a long queue. Once the queue clears, the yield will at that point be a lot, lot lower. So I don't think it's worth looking at a three month yield because that's just like a little bonus that you get as a one-off bonus. I think it's more important to look at it, you know, one year in, Where, where do things lie one year in?
1: Wow. Okay. So low yield. And of course, if there's a low yield, then it makes sense from your perspective why the internet's bond is not very interesting if it's just half a percent or, you know, one percent yield in ETH denominated terms. David, what do you say to this critique from from Jordy?
2: Yeah, yeah, there's 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 oops, sorry. You gotta unmute. There's two parts to this critique, right? Uh it's um that the yields are gonna come down and the gas fees aren't sufficient enough to like prop up that, that decline in yield, right? So gas fees are down bigly from DeFi summer and the, the yields inherently are overhyped because as more people come to stake their ether, then the yields will come down and that makes just ether less attractive of an asset. So let's, let's take these one at a, at a time. It's actually always been my bull case that the yields on ether come down because what that inherently means is that a significant amount of ether becomes Staked, and we, we've uh, described like the three pillars of Ether's value accrual on Bankless a couple times before. Supp- uh, staking sucks up a large supply of Ether, and that becomes staked and therefore removed from the market. Right, like you can't stake your ETH and sell it too. You got to do one. So if you're staking your Ether, you're saying I'm not selling it. Um, and generally, people will stake for a long time, I think, rather than just like go and like, you know, I'm going to stake my ETH this month, but then sell it the next month and buy it back. I think people are staking for the long term. So I think the generally the churn of stakers is going to be relatively low. And I'll talk about why that's not just speculation, but actually built into the proof of stake model. Um, And so like, if we're talking about like, yeah, the ether yields are coming down to like something very modest, 3% or less, 2%. Well, that follows that a ton of ether supply is now staked. And I think in order to get to something as low as 2% real yield, like we need something like 50 million ether, 40 million ether locked up. And that's yes. a- like almost 50% of the supply. Uh, and so if you're telling me that ether's is going down, i'm bullish that makes me bullish because a lot of ether comes off of the market and you also get this compounding effect of DeFi because if you can borrow ether from DeFi and lend it into staking and, and stake it to get that yield because there's an arbitrage there so like say it costs you one percent to borrow ether and you can stake that ether for two percent people will do that to arb that rate out so like not only do you get like 50 million plus ether locked and st- locked in staking but that also increases the ether demand out of the DeFi side so you get like a nice bonus multiplicative uh, multiplier on ether demand because then DeFi also sucks up some ether and so that's all like the second pillar of of eth value accrual is like how much ether is in DeFi. And when there's like sustainable, strong demand from Ether on the staking side, it actually bumps up the amount of that DeFi will demand of Ether because you can also get yield in DeFi on your Ether. And then the third pillar is of course the ETH burn rate. And like, yes, transaction fees down bigly, I think right now, like we were looking at the numbers yesterday, we are barely deflationary. I think we we're like 16, 17, 18 GUI average on the last month. Uh, we've been reporting it wrong at Bankless with the mean rather than the average. The mean has been something like 12, 10 or 12 GUE, but the mean is the average, uh, excuse me, the median. Mean- the median. I mean, yes. Yeah, this is actually the average that is like the correct ultrasound number. And that one's like barely deflationary. And so I, I think if we g- compare the Ether gas markets, to what we were all starting to talk about this ultrasound money meme way back when in 2021, when gas prices sustained like 100, 200 guay for a while, yes, we're not burning that much ether. Uh, and, and, and so like those numbers are down bigly. So the narrative has lost some tailwinds, but the fundamentals has always been the reduced issuance and, you know, okay. So like we're, we're going from four per four four point something percent issuance, 4.4%. We're going down to 0.4%. And then the ether burn does take us down to like 0.1% issuance or 0% issuance or like negative point something percent issuance. And so like we actually do get deflationary. And so maybe we do recapture some of that narrative, but like when it's really the point is comparing these to all other crypto assets where you have Bitcoin at 1.7% inflation, Solana at 6.7, Avalanche at 5.2, Cardano is doing pretty good at 1.8, but it's really comparing it to these and saying like, yes, like if Ether is not as ultrasound as it once was, if we had merged like in the bull market, but the comparison is like off the charts. In compared to other crypto assets. And if we compare this to like a treasury yield, I don't know what we're getting on treasury, 3%. Like, but that's the dollar though. though. Like, and the dollar doesn't go up in price. Ether, I mean, it goes down in price and went down from 40,800 down to where it is now. It also goes up in price too. Uh, And especially as we get into like wartime currencies where like currencies have to be inflated to pay for Europe's energy debt crisis. And just generally... The, the poor store of value nature of fiat currencies, I don't think it's fair to like compare treasuries to ether because you don't get the upside potential. And eventually, like as once the bull market returns, like if ether goes to 10K, which I think it will, like the yield that you get on your ether now, maybe it's just 2%. But if it goes up 5X, that effective yield is then, a, is then 10% in today's terms if you are also willing to express bullishness on, on ether. So that's what i'll say holistically to all those arguments
1: um i want to get back to, to jordy in a minute but just real quick david so do you think that block space demand for ethereum will come back um the way it was earlier in this year or in, like in previous years
2: i think jordy's argument that we're not ever really going to come back to like it's like sustained 200 Gwei gas prices is totally accurate like when we had like 200 300 400 Gwei during DeFi summer we didn't have flourishing ecosystem of layer twos there even weren't competitive layer ones to like offload a lot of that demand and we and i think we noticed that like ETH price ETH gas prices weren't high in the second half of 2021 because we had ways to get offload that block space demand onto other chains
1: so you think the new normal is low low lower than the
2: bull market i also think that we are in a depressed gas market environment and so i think like maybe it's more
1: normal what's a range david for you 30 to 50. Is going to be thirty to fifty Gwei. Is yeah. going to be the more normalized. Once like, we
2: get to back to some like sense of normalcy in, on gas markets, yeah, thirty to. And 50 remind guay. us
1: again when does ETH go deflationary? Fifteen. What? Fifteen. So yeah. Jordy, there's there's kind of like two pieces. I want you to pull apart from David's counter argument. The one is he's saying, "Hey, um, to get the yo know, low yield that you're talking about, you're criticizing. You have to lock up an awful." a lot of ETH in order to do that. And that is fundamentally bullish. And then secondly, I think he's saying um, block space demand, uh, you just heard him, uh, is actually in a kind of a temporary recession and we're gonna see gray prices at least 30 to 50, maybe not the bull price uh, for, for, for blocks-based demand, but at least 30 yeah. to 50, which is deflationary. So what do you say about those points?
0: Yeah, I mean, starting with the first one, Another one that I feel very strongly that I disagree completely about. Let's go a year forward and let's just imagine that indeed 60, 70% of ETH is staked. When you go to the exchange and you go to FTX, Coinbase, you know, Binance, you're going to be surprised that maybe the pair that you're trading is not going to be ETH USD. It's going to be staked ETH USD or maybe, you know, some other uh, version of that. That doesn't protect the price from going down. Like it's locked, people are trading it. It doesn't mean it's locked. Locked. Like people will just trade the other one. They'll just trade stake thief. It'll just go up and down exactly the same way it's going. It's a misconception to think that supply will be like off the market. It'll just be in a different form. The only way to really take it off the market is to like lose the keys. In that case, sure, that's super bullish. <laughs> like if 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 like you lock it up and you actually like throw the key away. But if you're locking it up into a liquid instrument, by definition, it's a liquid instrument, it will have the same price impact. So I've seen this brought up many times and I think it's a misunderstanding. Um, on, on the uh, yield aspect, I wanna talk about that a little bit as well because 30 to 50 is, is way out of my expectations. So uh, we we do kind of disagree a little bit there. Um, in terms of like the inflation reduction, like I said, this is very bullish. They should double the price of ETH uh, from what it would be otherwise. That, that's kind of like important to say. Now, in terms of like using it as a meme, first of all, you know, Bitcoin in the next halving, which is only two years away, will go down to like 0.8. Uh, ETH, the 15 way that's been quoted is actually incorrect. It goes up as more people stake. There's two things happening as more people stake. More ETH is being issued. At the same time, it's divided by more people. It's kind of confusing because both are happening not linearly, so it's like both are happening a little bit there's if 15 million people stake versus 30 million there's not going to be twice as much eth being issued the the inflation of eth will only go up by like you know there's like a formula maybe it's like but instead of being times 2 it'll be let's say like 1.5 and you know you're you're dividing that 1.5 by more people but in terms of managing to stay in deflationary i think you're on a race that you'll never catch up you kind of start at the point where like for the first few weeks, you're very close, but one is up only. The amount of staked ETH is up only. Like you can't even withdraw right now. So even if you want to, you can't take it out for a long time. And I agree that, you know, the structurally, we won't really see like a reduction in staked ETH over time as people get used to it. The wallets integrate, the, co- the exchanges integrate. ETH will just be staked ETH. It, like It will be like a mistake not to stake it. So we will just see like that up only. At some point, the amount of ETH issued every day will go from 1,500 a day to 5,000 a day, possibly more, if you get 80%, which is what we see in Solana and some other uh, layer ones in terms of staking. 5,000 ETH a day requires very high gas usage. And as David said, layer twos are giving a lot more block space now. They will potentially become much more efficient in their block usage when they wanna check back into layer ones. Protocols themselves like OpenSea are spending a lot of work on getting their smart contracts more efficient to burn less less gas as well. So a lot of these things are kind of inherently reducing gas usage. And therefore I think it's a losing race and we won't actually see any sustainable deflationary ETH. And in fact, I think that in two years, the, the issuance between ETH and BTC will be very close to each other. Maybe ETH will still be a little bit lower, but it'll be quite close.
1: Jordi, I, I want to ask, so if David's projections, I think you were saying, um, a, a couple of things, but let's talk about the block space demand. If David's projections are 30 to 50 GUE as kind of a more normalized post recessionary block space, uh, rate, like what are your projections as far like eight as Eight to space? 16, eight to, eight 16. to 16. And, yeah. and the reason you're giving is because we won't see another, you know, uh, 2000, to two thousand, you know, early 2022 period of like 200 plus square prices because applications are getting much more efficient in their usage of block space, including layer twos?
0: That's only on the margin. That's something that maybe reduces everything by 30%. The main contribution to the difference between what we saw before is the existence of layer twos of other layer ones. So that if you have like a new mania, like an NFT mania, so it wasn't just DeFi summer. I mean, the NFT like boom initially, OpenSea just had Ethereum that was like the only integration. They were the only platform that people were really like doing a lot of volume on. Going forward, if there's a new mania, uh, semi-fungible tokens, let's just say like there's a new thing that, that people want to do a lot on. They don't need to do it on the main chain. They'll be able to do it. You know, people don't want to spend like $200 on a transaction. Like I, I, I can afford it and it still bothers me. Like, uh, like it, it just It just feels wrong. People want to just spend like small amounts. So they'll do it on, you know, if they want to do it on the Ethereum ecosystem, they'll do it on Arbitrum, you know, some other layer two. There's a ton of them coming online for different use cases. And they'll also have app chains, which we can get into at the end. But I think that, you know, that's another important thing to consider.
1: So, uh, they'll have a lot of other options for like excess block space demand that weren't present in 2020 I, I, to 2022. exactly I, I
0: i i do agree that there will be like at some point a new mania that people want to do things on chain i just don't think that they'll have to spend a lot of gas for it
1: uh th- these are uh
0: tantalizing critiques i think and i want to get
1: david to respond but uh we're gonna do david a favor and cut to sponsors so he can have a couple of minutes to think about what he's going to say in reply. Guys, we'll be right back with this debate between Jordy and David. Is the merge overhyped or not? But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Jordy Alexander and David Hoffman uh, on whether the merge is overhyped or not. Jordy says it is. David says it's not where we left things. Uh, Jordy just gave a, you know, a fantastic critique and criticism, David, I want to hear you maybe push back on. So two things he said, you know, all that staking lockup you're talking about, you know, 50 million ETH or so uh, locked away. Well, that actually doesn't matter because it's all pretty liquid. Uh, and so when you say locked up, it's not really locked. That was the first critique. The second is around block space demand. Now you were saying maybe the normalized rate is between thirty to fifty Gwei. Jordi is saying now it's a fraction of that, eight to sixteen Gwei, and the reasons he gave were um, there are far more options than there were in previous cycles, and that is new for Ethereum. It's never had to compete for block space demand in that way. So David, back to you. What order do you want to take these uh, these cr- critiques in?
2: Uh, and also on that gas market uh, argument, he's also, Jordi's also saying that, well, as more stake comes into the market, which I think we all agree will happen, more ether will become staked. The threshold for being ultra sound also goes up because more issuance comes in and more staked. Rather than
1: 15 Gwei, yeah, it be like becomes 20 GWE, 20 22 something like that. Yes. Yeah.
2: Uh, okay. So I will admit that like, I hadn't actually fully accounted for the whole staked ETH derivative um, meta, which I mean, I do believe that over time staked ETH derivative tokens are like rocket pools are ETH, Lido staked ETH. There's like other competitors coming onto the market. Coinbase's CB ETH does approach like slowly but surely does like begin to approach 100% of all stake. Like that's just like the logical outcome. Maybe in practice it only gets to like 70, 80, 80 90% of all staked ether. But like the v- utility of staking your ether and creating a derivative token out of it is higher than not doing that. So like naturally the consequence will be all staked ether will become a safety derivative token like with Rocket Pool. Base whatever, so I I do agree with that, and so therefore, yes. Then like the whole supply coming out of the market maybe is is overstated because it's not actually locked. You can actually just get liquidity on it. Hence the whole point of these products. Um, So yes, are you
1: conceding a point here? I'll I'll
2: concede a point there. Um, Mm, My but my brain then next next goes to like this inherent nature of proof of work, uh, uh, excuse me, proof of proof of stake is that it rewards bulls for being bullish. And this is in direct contrast to proof of work where proof of work miners are in like a race to sell Bitcoin because or their proof of work asset because of the very nature of what proof of work is. It forces you to have operational costs that theoretically approach 99.99% of your profit margins, because if you have any more profit margins, you would reinvest into your business to produce and consume more Bitcoins than your counterpart. Uh, the proof of stake completely inverts that. And it actually starts to like make a game of chicken of who's more bullish. It's like, oh, you're gonna stake your ether down to 3% yield? Well, I'm gonna stake my ether down to 2.5% yield because I'm so bullish ether that I'll take a lesser yield than you and I'm still holding my asset, I'm still a holder. And because I'm still a holder and I'm super long on, on ether, what do I want most in the world? More ether the most. And so I'll stake it for the least amount of yield. And so then like, we get to this game of chicken it's like oh you're you're bullish down to like 1.5 percent well i'm bullish down to one percent i'm still holding and so like it, it kind of doesn't matter so much if like the yields go down because the way that proof of work, work or proof of stake works is that whereas proof of work creates the theoretical 100 sell pressure proof of stake creates a the theoretical 100 hoarding supply And so the stakers are always going to be the most bullish people on ether, the asset, and they're the people who get the issuance. And so while real like, well, real yields might compress the holder supply, the people that are holding all of that issuance are the most bullish people who aren't sending it to the marketplace. Uh, So that's that would be my revised rebuttal to that particular point. We'll start with that. Jordy, what do you think?
0: I mean, there, there is an element of hoarding for sure, because once you have the asset, that's also getting you more of the asset you want to, you want to keep it. Um, you know, there's no, there's no reason to be negative on everything. My point is you can't have, you know, your cake and eat it as well. So if you want to say that no one's going to sell because they're going to, you know, they're just going to hold it, they're going to hoard it. And, and that's, that's possible. There's two problems. One, the distribution of is going down. So like, you know, as new teenagers are becoming adults and they want to partake and have like a sizable meaningful amount of ETH it becomes harder and harder if if people like hoarding it's it's harder and also for usage as well which is the other thing I want to get into uh, which is very important which is if you're actually using this as a hoarding asset if people want to just use it to actually do stuff on chain they're not gonna do that so Maybe that's fine. Maybe like all the activity moves to L2s and all the fees come from like L2s kind of checking into uh checking into state on, on L1. So maybe that's okay. But you won't have this like romantic vision of like, you know, guy going to college and working and getting his first ETH and, and being able to like just go to main chain and, and buy some NFTs on main chain, whatever. Um, it might be a different world if it ends up being like this hoarding asset. So that's true. And I will I will also say, you know, to the I will agree with with um, one really positive argument that if you do get a lot of staked ETH, and this is maybe like what I wanna focus on the most, ultimately, one amazing good thing is that you're getting a lot of security. And proof of stake, uh, there's two ways to count security. Uh, there's censorship resistance, which you can make a lot of cases that proof of work is better for censorship resistance in the sense of you know, China wanted to shut down, people just moved to a different country. But if everyone owning the ETH know, the exchanges are based in the US and the US government says something, uh, you know, that might be a problem for, uh, for the exchanges. And like we've already seen all the discussion around Coinbase, for example, what would they do? So we can kind of like look at the censorship resistance. I'm actually happy that we will have the two biggest coins each take a different approach, one proof of work, one proof of stake, so that if the state ever wants to destroy crypto, they need to find a way to attack both. And that's just gonna be like very, very difficult to do at the same time. So I, I'm, I'm happy that we have both. And I will say like very positively, having a lot of staked ETH, which we will have because it's incentivized, uh, it creates a huge amount of security in terms of dollars needed for somebody to do like a 51% attack, for example, or you know, really to, to get enough ETH to to mess with, um, you know, the amount of validators that are needed. So this is true. And in a way, there is uh, a way to look at it as the value proposition for ETH because where if you're an app, you're not gonna build your own like hundred billion dollar security model. You're just gonna latch onto this one. And we have a few different security models. The ETH one is, is obviously like a really important one to look into. There's a few other ones. Uh, I would mention three. Uh, we have Polkadot. I've always not been a fan of the polka dot one because basically you're, it's like a landlord that has a mall and it's charging people to get a store in the mall. It's like, you have an auction and you figure out how much you need to pay for your security inside my mall and you get access to the mall. I think what we've seen is that apps don't wanna pay for security, they wanna get paid. It's not like uh, they actually uh, wanna like give money for security, they wanna kind of partake. Uh, we have NEAR, which is a very interesting one, where we've seen things like Sweatcoin now kind of choose NEAR because they get 30% of the gas back. So they get, it's kind of like a J- JV, and I think that's extremely interesting. And then we have Cosmos, which is like the other interesting system, which I think will be like the two, the second biggest one after after the Ethereum ecosystem, and that has its unique uh, points. So maybe part of the discussion is which security system is gonna be long-term better Cause you will have a lot of security.
1: I do think this is a interesting, um, criticism maybe that we can dive into. I do want to get back uh, to the block space demand piece of it, but let's, let's park that for later. So I think w- one of Jordy's points that I heard him just make now, David, and I, I certainly saw in his, um, in his article is the ETH bulls on the long-term horizon seem to think there's going to be one chain to rule them all one global settlement layer that is going to accrue the vast majority of the model Jordi, i don't want to put words in your mouth but i think what you were saying is like hey that's not true like that's some rose-colored glasses we live in a multi-chain world there are some other protocols with unique approaches near the cosmos where you have sort of a, the idea of all of these sovereign chains not one central settlement layer um, maybe we could get into that david what do you think about this are ETH bulls, being like merge bulls in particular, too long term bullish that the Ethereum model of one chain to rule them all is going to win. What do you say to these pushbacks and criticisms?
2: Yeah, I, I do think I fall in the camp of the believers who the belief that one chain will become the dominant settlement layer. To rule them all. I do believe that. And the reason why I think this still works while also preserving our ability to produce chains that have different philosophies on how they work is that like the long the Ethereum vision, the roll up centric roadmap vision to Ethereum is about producing one central blockchain that does one thing extremely well, which is having and providing a ton of security. And then the other thing that like I'm not really accounted for by like core ETH devs, but, but what I think is naturally going to emerge is that the Ethereum layer one largely kind of just becomes like Uniswap and Curve and maybe OpenSea as like the dominant NFT liquidity engine, but basically exchanges like decentralized exchanges for assets. And I kind of can totally see a world where like Uniswap block based demand is like 50% of Ethereum or like exchange block based demand is 51% of Ethereum. Then we have all of these roll-ups plus the combination of EIP 4844, which if I were to summarize what EIP 4844 does is that it allows for a roll-up to be built on Ethereum with minimum viable rent extraction, as in the minimum amount of uh, layer one gas fees that these roll-ups need to pay for Ethereum to provide security. So it's the minimum amount of, couple between the layer one Ethereum and the layer two roll up that gives the maximum amount of security. So it's, it's Ethereum saying like, hey, we want to extract from you the absolute minimum amount it takes to provide you with a full might and power of the Ethereum layer one security. And so on with that model, you can have whatever and everything that Jordi just said on these other models. Like you can put near as a rollup on Ethereum because we like that model. You can put whatever you want on top of Ethereum because of your particular philosophy or political leanings or design choices. And so it is like this whole like one chain to rule them all and that property that that chain wins by is security. But that it's the, The very nature of that is that it actually creates a flourishing of many, 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 many blockchains on top of it that does actually tick the box of, hey, what is your, what is your values? How are your design principles? What do you want to do here? Uh, And I do kind of think that like all of these alternative chains, like the Cosmos ecosystem, the Nier ecosystem, Celestia... If they had the money, if they had the dominant security asset, they would be the ones that are like, no, it's our model that's gonna be the one chain to rule them all, and everyone else is gonna be built on us. So I think all the subdominant chains are like, it's gonna be a multi chain world because they're subdominant. And as soon as they become like the dominant chain, they're like, no, 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 everything is secured by us. We have the most security. Everything's gonna be built by us. Uh, and so it's really just a matter of who's in the lead at this point.
1: I think this is really interesting, and it links back to the block space argument because I think what you can sort of see where where David is coming from versus Jordy I'm I'm talking to the listener now so if you believe in what David believes with one chain being kind of the global settlement layer and, and its gravitational pull sucking all of the other chains in then you could easily see a 30 to 50 uh Gwei price in like a normalized ethereum mode. probably it's even, roll up
2: settling with each other
1: right probably even higher but if you believe, as Jordy does, that there's not going to be one dominant chain to rule them all, that Ethereum block space ain't nothing special, or at least not too special. If you reject this idea of Ethereum exceptionalism that maybe maybe Uh-oh. you think David is preaching here, then you can easily see a world where ETH is no longer deflationary and you have gas prices of 8 to, to 16 Gwei. want to have you weigh in on, on this argument a little bit longer, Jordy, because this kind of goes to your long-term criticism with the ETH bulls and the merge bulls. Um, what do you say to David's points about Ethereum being kind of the, the gravitational pull for settlement for everything digital, everything in crypto?
0: Yeah, I mean, in, in general, I agree with, with parts of uh, what David was saying, but one of the main things I wanted to put forward in, in my article and in general, I think is, is very under-talked, is we should really look at things from the app perspective because we've kind of like, the you know, 2021 really was like a a layer one year. It was all about layer ones and all layer ones. And that's really what was kind of like doing very well. And we had all this like explosion, can be an explosion of different uh, attempts and and, and different like models. But I think it's time to start looking at use cases and apps. And I really wanna focus on the the app perspective rather than the the base layer perspective. Cause you can kind of look down from the base layer and say like, hey, I have all the security Come here and do stuff. Or you can look at it from an entrepreneur who is building an app and he's like, you know, I'm going to get 100 million people to like do push ups in, in the right way. And I'm going to reward them with this token. They're not necessarily like thinking about, I need $100 billion of security. They might be thinking about like, you know, what's going to give me like a cheap throughput and, uh, you know, share the fees with me and, and like I can have my own store and my own decks and whatever. So, from that perspective, which I think. Is very underlooked at. There is a reason to be quite confident on the multi chain world, which which I am, because not everything needs security. Certainly, like certain financial transactions, and like if you have a lot of uh you know money parked on stable coins, you probably want it on ETH. You don't want it on like a chain that can get attacked, you know, quite easily. That's that's for sure. But if you're doing like an NFT project, do you need Ethereum? I mean maybe initially, cause it was kind of where everything was happening on OpenSea and everything else. But uh, you know, if you're building a game, does it have to be a layer two um, on Ethereum? Can it just be like its own uh, completely separate chain? There's different layers of decentralization diff- that are needed for different use cases. And as we look at the use cases, a lot of them will go in different buckets and we'll say like, okay, this one does need like $200 billion of security. This one needs to have like full ownership over what it's doing. It doesn't need that much security. Maybe Atom is the coin that kind of provides a shared security for like kind of you know a group of chains. There's different models that, that we can see. And I would disagree that you can just kind of have all of these, you know, you can take near and put it as layer two. Like the, you know, ultimately, like either there's rent extraction happening or there's not. And if you don't need the rent extraction, then, then nobody wants to pay for it. So I think looking at the use cases, it's hard to know exactly what they're gonna be, like which ones are gonna be the successful ones. N- nobody like, you know, Vitalik didn't see NFTs coming. Um, the, the next one could be like something out of left field, obviously like step in, you know, move to earn, whatever was like another, you know, successful one that was out of left field. Um, I'm not sure that money necessarily will be at the center of it. It could be entertainment. And so, you know, Ethereum's security layer is mostly useful for the monetary kind of uses that are high value, like stable coins, things like that. Um, and even for those, there could be other options as they, as they grow bigger. So, needing ETH as a security layer is a maybe, and it depends on, on the apps. And I really think people should think about apps more.
1: So how about, um, I want to get to the the crux of the question and maybe the crux of the sort of the disagreement between uh, you and David on this, Jordy. So um, David might agree with you that the vast majority of applications will occur off of Ethereum L1 or even Layer 2 ecosystems. Where I think he might disagree is the value accrual. So if you say something like all of the money type applications are still on Ethereum, I think david might retort and say yeah that's because that's where all the value is and the other block space will be low commodity low fee block space the ethereum block space will be the block space that's valuable so maybe just distilling this into like in a fully realized multi-chain world what percentage do you think ethereum will be of the total layer one uh market cap let's say of a hundred percent are we talking Ethereum at you know ten to twenty percent. Are we talking Ethereum at like sixty to uh, ninety percent?
0: I think market cap about thirty percent, and I think TVL could be higher, but that that doesn't it won't scale with market cap because there'll be less demand for block space, even with things that don't have a high TVL, like we talked about, like you know gaming doesn't have a lot of TVL, but it can burn a lot of transactions. It can burn a lot of gas. So I think ultimately, you know. In the in the one third range, is is kind of where I expect in, in like the ten year horizon to see ETH, and I see like another big successful story like maybe Adam, maybe something else having a similar kind of size, and then a bunch of smaller niche uh, decentralized blocks block blockchains.
1: David, I want you to Jordan, paint you a think, similar picture uh... um, ten years from now. Uh, so, what are we looking at as far as ETH for Layer One percentage of market cap? Jordy says thirty percent. What would you say?
2: Yeah, it's a hard question. Jordy, do you think in that world that Ethereum Ether is not the number one crypto asset by market cap?
0: Um, as it's currently designed, I, I don't think that it can scale, and I don't think that unless changes are made, um, that it it will be the number one crypto asset. I guess like we're eventually gonna get to like the monetary argument, the monetary premium argument, because a lot of it ultimately, this is like one of my main points. You're you're having this hybrid thing where you're looking at it as like, you know, Bitcoin, like gold, digital gold, uh, a a digital kind of uh, asset that people will just store value in. And then you have, you know, the block space argument. So when you look at the price, if you look at it from the block space argument, what I've laid out in my article is like, ultimately what you should look at is how much money are people spending on gas and how much will they be willing to spend? Right now it's less than a billion dollars a year, but let's take like one to 2 billion. If the market cap is 200 billion, which is very close to what it is right now, it's around 200 billion. You have between 100 and 200, you know, P- price to earning ratio, like a PE ratio, which is is obviously like a very high. I'm not saying it's wrong. I actually think it's okay. It is a growth asset. It's a new asset. Like you know, something like um, Amazon in, in like an early days or, or Google will also have like an extremely high PE ratio. But what we're basically saying is that if block space, if the if, if block um, cost doesn't change and, and and things kind of stay where they are and people are only spending $1 billion a year on block space, it'll take 200 years for this business. If you look at it as, as kind of like a business to, you know, get its valuation. So. People will say, like, well, then you know, it, part of it's monetary premium. It's not just, it's not just that, and it's such a complicated um, argument, and we, we can get into it. But I I guess that's that's my first foray into how how I mentally construct right. the the two elements.
2: Yeah, I think the logical flow of this conversation is is like, yeah, the reason why it's 200 price per earnings is because the P-E ratio doesn't price in like uh, reservation demand as collateral inside of DeFi apps. And so like you'll buy Ether and stick it inside of Maker and that'll pump the price without increasing the block space revenue. Um, I think that conversation, I think, is generally well understood by long-term bankless listeners and also like the lesser interesting part. And, and kind of going back to what Ryan was saying is that uh, when he was, like, making my argument for me is that, you know, Ethereum block space is super valuable because it's the most secure, right? Like, if you have something of high value, you buy a very, very good safe to put that in. You don't buy, like, a cheap Amazon safe to put your, put, to put your expensive transactions into. Uh, and so, like, yeah, like, if we have this gaming-suited chain that does a bajillion TPS, yeah, it's because like my like long sword of, of fire is not going to be the, need the same amount of security as like my Uniswap trade. Uh, and so like, sure, like you can have, like you put all of the like non-value transactions on like a specific chain, but that chain isn't going to generate, is gonna have an even worse PE ratio than Ethereum. Uh, because I, and we've seen this anecdotally in like Solana, Avalanche, every like Ethereum competitor that scales on as a monolithic chain by scaling the layer one, their P.E. ratios are like off the charts in comparison to Ether. Ether as an industry, I think, has the best P.E. ratio of any like layer one asset, but proof of stake smart contract asset. Uh, and so, again, it goes back to a little bit of just like, what are we comparing it to? Uh, And so like we could say maybe there's like a bear case fundamentally for ether on the horizon, but compared to all other like things that we actually see in the crypto world, like the PE ratio on ether is the best. Uh, People are willing to pay the most block space because it's the most secure. The willingness to pay I think is really the big one here.
1: David, before we get off of you, I I, I do want to make sure you you do answer that question that that Jordy answered, Mm -hmm. which is he said 30% market cap, and then you Mm -hmm. asked him if he he thought ETH was number one in that. He said no. He doesn't think it'll be number one. So 10 years from now, percentage of layer one market, what do you think uh, Ether is at that point in time?
2: I don't have a strong conviction on the percentage. I don't know. I do have strong conviction that Ether is the number one crypto asset. I think... I would be comfortable saying thirty percent is like the floor, as in it won't be below that. Um, I could see a world where ether is not above fifty percent of all total layer one market cap.
0: Do you want to? Are we including? Are we including Bitcoin as layer one? Yes, we are. Okay, yeah. Then, 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 (laughs) my number is is probably lower than than thirty percent.
1: Is it closer to what what it would be closer to? Um,
0: yeah, like twenty percent.
1: 20 percent and then uh david what do you think as far as 10 year like um market cap in terms of dollar numbers Dollar
2: numbers i don't even yeah. know what the value of a dollar is going to be in 10 years ryan <laughs> all right so like really 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 big
1: fair <laughs> enough well let, let's get to this last piece of the argument then i want to round trip and talk short term again and then we i think we can call this a success and I think bankless listeners are really learning a lot from, from this conversation it's just a pleasure to have you both on. <laughs> I get to have David all, on all the time with Jordy. It's a pleasure to, to, if you're ever looking for a podcast host. Okay. Well, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> anyway, um, so, uh, just kind of round tripping on this converse, conversation, because I don't know if I saw it in your article explicitly, but it seems to be a, a point that you're making is you seem to doubt entirely. not maybe not entirely that's too strong of words but you seem to doubt the monetary premium aspect of ether as an asset that i think is probably fundamentally inherent in the eth mergeable um overhype case they think that ether is actually money and they call it ultrasound money and this means that it has a monetary premium but you seem to think that's not the case can you poke some holes in the monetary premium argument that the ETH are making.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about it. I, I do think it is complicated. Um, even in the real world, we have the reserve currency, the US dollar. We have other currencies that are not reserve currencies that still have value just because they're used in that ecosystem in that country. Like the Brazilian real might not be the best currency in the world, but it has a lot of value. Like a lot of people use it. In a way, Ethereum can have monetary premium that is not reserve asset digital reserve asset monetary premium, if it has a very strong community and the community wants to have Ethereum, it can have potentially monetary premium. I don't know exactly what that means because we haven't seen it before. It's something that, you know, we have these new digital communities, digital countries. So the the the, the fiat or the digital kind of currency of the Ethereum country, if you look at it as kind of Balaji talks about it, like a you know, decentralized country, can have monetary premium without ETH necessarily acting in the global world as a reserve to back you know some some other use case or to back like um, you know central banks or, or whatever else it is so even without it becoming a global store of value it can have some monetary premium which is sort of like a community or a global nation monetary premium and i don't know how to value that exactly so i don't discount it completely um but i will say that in terms of the store of value thesis and competing with Bitcoin and the obsession a lot of ETH bulls have with the flipping, Um, I I am completely against the obsession. I think it's possible there's a flippening, it could reflip in, there could be like a third thing that comes up. I don't think it's what really is important. The idea that somehow um, ETH can act as both a you know global reserve currency of, of the digital world and also act as something that people are actually transacting with, um, does not work, you have to kind of specialize in something. And, you know, other people have said this, I know Arthur Hayes talks about this as well, but the properties of money, if you actually wanna have like a base money, sort of like a hard money, are very different than the properties of Ethereum. It's not that Ethereum is a better version because you can do stuff with it. It's a worse version because you can do stuff with it. And I think people who really philosophically understand like why hard money exists and what the purpose of it is, eventually get to this conclusion and so i think the current like catch all of it's a better version because you can also spend it and and also this actually is is mistaken um and ultimately my my hope for ethereum and, and like really what i would like to see and would make me extremely bullish long term is if it kind of settles into what it is and understands that taking the role of the digitally scarce asset which bitcoin serves quite well not exceedingly well it has long term um security concerns. So that's a completely different topic in a podcast to get into separately, like, you know, how, how those will, will get resolved. But in terms of like Ethereum acting as that asset, it is not designed for it. And it should kind of maybe be the, the currency of its own country and maybe be like the cost of valuable block space and look at it as like, you know, what is the benefit of an app being able to use this very valuable security? rather than trying to be everything i just don't i don't see that happening
1: so are you would it be accurate to say jordi you're more bullish on bitcoin as a monetary premium asset in crypto than ether
0: yes as a digital reserve currency like i said the the, the concept of a monetary premium i think even dogecoin can have monetary premium which is like a meme premium which it will always be that you know the pure first meme it, it will always have that that aspect to it that will you know potentially in 50 years people will will still buy dogecoin which is useless because it has like a monetary premium as you can call it um so i think eth can have a sort of monetary premium just like within its
1: within its community and not be viewed outside as outside of its economy as a reserve currency asset correct i respects. don't
0: exactly I, I don't see how eth can become a macro asset where you know in the macroeconomic conversation they're saying well gold is up today and bitcoin is up and <laughs> Oh, actually, it's Ethereum that's uh like that's hard to to get from point A to point B. All right, so David, uh, weigh in here, Jordy saying, pick
1: a lane. Uh-huh. Enough with the uh, the manifest destiny around the the flippening, right? You're either sound money, you're, you, you're some sort of utility asset in your economy, but don't try to be both. Bitcoin's already got that use case covered. What do you think about this?
2: Yeah, the whole idea of like it's money inside of its own community and its own like sector. Uh, it's actually a concept I wrote about way back when in I think like a 2009 article called like Ether is Equity. I wrote about it like as a version of company script. Uh, you pr- like, you're
1: probably going to mean uh, 2019 <laughs> rather than what? 2009. Oh, yes. Yeah. Pre- I was pre- not writing Bitcoin. about
2: crypto in 2009, sadly. Pre- David is um, Satoshi. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then like the, the, the idea for this is like there are these like coal mining towns and they issue their own currency to their own town. And like you use that currency inside of your own community and it has value because like you can use at the general store and the bar and you're paid in it or something like this. And that's kind of like what Ether is. Like we mint our own money, you can use it in Uniswap, you can use it in MakerDAO, it's good for our own community. The thing is, is that like it starts off small, but eventually like Ethereum, I think just naturally fills the container that it resides inside of and that container is the internet. And so like the reason why Ether will become a macro asset is because Ethereum is as large as the internet itself. It comes to put, financial roots into like all relevant corners of the internet that can see that. And we're seeing this like right now with like Reddit, for example, doing their like avatars as NFTs on like an Arbitrum layer two. Uh, And that's just like one small part of Reddit in one small corner of the internet and like you know you can layer on gaming and like it goes back to the fundamental belief that I do all think that ethereum does become the generalized settlement layer to all financial corners of the internet and like the thing that the internet has not yet become because of web2 doesn't allow for it is like financialized so ethereum is like best positioned to like put not the layer 1 but many layer twos and app specific layer threes as like a fractal root structure that just grows into all corners of the internet. And all of a sudden ether becomes the native currency of the internet. And the ETH stake rate is like the native bond of the internet. Uh, that's like the fundamental bull case for Ethereum. And like the reason why this always works for Ethereum and lesser so for any other proof of stake smart contract system because those also exist is that the Ethereum is the only one that prioritizes security above all. And so it actually has the abundant security to actually extend security into all corners of the internet. And what is security other than settlement assurances that your asset is yours. Maybe you don't need strong settlement assurances if we're talking about like a Reddit avatar, but the fact, but that's actually a choice by uh, a choice that the arbitrum layer two can make. And and eventually, you can actually, if you do want to, because for some reason your Reddit avatar NFT becomes super valuable, you can also go all the way back down to the Ethereum layer one. And that only works in a system that is designed for strong, secure settlement uh, that offers any sort of settlement guarantees. And you just don't get that same thing with any other proof of stake uh, smart contract platform that we know of today, because Solana and Avalanche have not optimized for security, they optimize for speed. Uh, and so, like, you just lose the monetary premium nature. And then the other, the other thing you said is that, like, you know, Ether is trying to do all the things and versus, like, just trying to become a money. And I'm, I think this is, like, a core philosophy that I see, I see being debated in the world of crypto space. Like, do you become money because you add a bunch of t- utility to your asset or are you Bitcoin and you just have, like, the supply schedule and that's the money? Uh, and, like, I'm firmly in the camp that the way that you make and inject monetary premium... Is that you you fill all three asset superclasses to the best of your ability you got consumable uh, consumable assets like energy gasoline and gas as ether to make a, an, a transaction on ethereum you have store value assets uh, like a house or gold or bitcoin or ether as collateral inside of DeFi, and then you also have uh, capital assets which are yield bearing instruments like a bond or a house or uh, a, st- a dividend paying stock. Those are the three asset superclasses. Ether is the only asset in all time to fit inside of all three asset superclasses. So like it goes as follows is that like the monetary premium behind this asset is also going to be the strongest monetary premium that the world has ever seen because we've never seen an asset fit into all three superclasses before this. Uh, I'll, I'll let it go there. Guys,
1: this has been a, a really fun debate, and it's getting a little bit long. Um, Jordy, do you have a burning desire to respond to that, or should we talk about short term and then close it out?
0: Um, I don't need to respond, though. You know, that was like a nice bull kind of like argument. <laughs> I love it. Um, I, I will just say a couple things. Like one, we should just remember, you know, behind everything else, what matters is incentives. You know, people are ultimately. I know what, what will determine the future and you have to follow incentives. And, you know, for example, with Bitcoin, one of the problems that it has had is once it got too big, people could just pump something smaller, get like a 5x return rather than get like a 10% return in Bitcoin. That was an incentive issue that started to kind of plague that, you know, it stalled progress, let's say, like it stalled a lot of the progress. So we have to be cognizant of like human incentives. And so like for my next article, I, I will be trying to, Think for myself because like th- nobody's answered these things. But think about you know what what do what do human incentives point us towards? What kind of equilibriums do we reach? And I'm not sure that you know once ETH is very big, um, if somebody new is coming in as an entrepreneur or like trying to do something new, that they will be incentivized to use it. Maybe they'll be incentivized to create something new. So like incentives ultimately will will determine who wins the the, the ultimate debate. And um, I'm going to try to help kind of push the ball forward in terms of our thinking about um, incentives.
1: That's really cool. We're definitely going to be looking forward to uh, to that argument. So um, full circle, last question for both of our debaters. Uh, let's let's bring it back to the short run. So uh, Jordy, I think I heard you say earlier in the episode that in this macro environment, you can't see anything pre or post merge uh, from a price perspective of Ether exceeding $2,000. Uh, is that the case? And and tell us why. Tell us kind of your range price prediction for what happens in the short to medium run after the merge.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, in crypto, as we know, everything is really fuzzy. So we kind of latch onto the round numbers, things like 1,000, 10,000, 2000. And, um, you know, once we kind of got to 2000 recently, it was like the dog catching up to the car. I kind of felt like, okay, now you caught the car. What do you do now? Like you caught up to the car. And and so like, we just kind of bounce back off. Uh, I, I see like there's a lot of resistance there. We eventually, of course, break it just as, you know, I think um, Bitcoin will, will break upwards as well at some point. But I would say given the macro environment and the resistance level and the psych- psychological resistance, that's the point at which I'm not right now comfortable kind of, Pressing forward past that point in in the you know next months until until the macro environment clears.
1: So price cap of two thousand until the macro environment um, clears out. David, what do you think about that? What are your kind of price predictions if you're just to take a crystal ball out?
2: Right. Yeah. Like the macro is scary right now, um, and I, I it's just like you know energy crisis bad. Like you got revolts, blah blah blah. Like there's actual war going on, but also like. In a way, there's a way for that to also be like bullish for assets. Uh, and that's just like, if if macro gets actually bad, that we actually just like have to turn on the money printer, then like it's actually bullish. So in my mind, I'm like, macro's confusing. There's bear scenarios, there's bull scenarios. I kind of just like, it just washes out the bull. The bull scenarios wash out the bear scenarios. It kind of, I think those, those things cancel each other out to the best of my knowledge, because um, I can't really reason about it too much. Um, and so I kind of don't really consider macro. Um, again, and it mostly goes to my focus on like comparing Ether to other crypto assets. But I will say that two, uh, two things, there's the execution risk that we haven't talked about so far. There's the execution risk that goes away post-merge if we merge correctly. So I guess that also begs the question, like there might be a catastrophic event. I don't know how to uh, calculate the likelihood of that thing. Um, but there's like there are people who are waiting for Ether to de-risk and they'll perhaps buy Ether once we post-merge because the risk is gone. Uh, and then there's also people who just fundamentally don't think that the merge is happening or they are just not staying up to date with Ethereum. and they're like Bitcoin they're bitcoiners, Bitcoin Maxis who are doing this, like la 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 la. Uh, and and so there's all these people. And like the reason why I actually think there's enough of those people out there is like various Twitter polls from somebody like Eric Wall, who is a, a relatively neutral observer who has a very diverse group of Twitter followers. It was something like sixty percent said the merge was going to go, totally according to plan and 35 to 40% that the merge is gonna be delayed or kicked back or something is gonna go wrong. And like all the Ethereum core devs are like 95% plus likelihood of success. And honestly, 95% is low. Uh, and so like, I think that is like the crypto market itself, the crypto community, the people that, that move their money around inside of crypto assets are actually not priced in on the merge because, you know, proof of stake has been coming for six years now. Like the fact that it's all actually like arrived is probably falling on deaf ears uh, because like we've been having this like, yeah, proof of stake has been coming for like six, seven years now. The fact that it's actually here, I think is going to blindslide a lot of people. And, that's, and that is capital that is undeployed into Ether that I think will become deployed into Ether as a result of the merge. And I think that is a bullish catalyst. The actual US dollar numbers, if I gave out a number, I would just, set up myself up for being wrong in the future um, that's okay you've done that before <laughs> <laughs> i've learned not to
0: do you have a do you have but a BTC above number like
2: above two thousand dollars uh and i do think that ether hits 0.1 btc by the end of q1 2022 23 23
1: what is it now 0.085
2: uh, point zero eight eight zero. It was 0.085 yesterday. It's like point zero eight two today. And
1: you are more comfortable with your ratio bet than your U.S. dollar, bet. dollar price yeah. bet because who knows what's going to happen with macro? Correct.
2: Yeah.
1: There we have it, guys. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I just want to thank Jordy for for coming on and and speaking to uh, uh to David agreeing to to debate on this topic. I would also like um, to thank
2: our fantastic moderator. <laughs> yes,
1: you, you were extremely moderate as
0: a moderator you did not take any strong sides and that that's, that's very well done oh good uh I'm glad I mean these are
1: lots these, these are really fun and honestly this is some of our favorite content to produce at Bankless because we always want to double check our, our thought bubble and um you've given all of us the entire Bankless community a lot to think about so Jordi appreciate you and David of course as always appreciate you coming on the podcast and for everything you do um it's guys right. we'll end it there but you know what we will include a link to both Jordy's article, which was on Bankless a few weeks ago. And then David couldn't help himself. He wrote a rebuttal to that article. So we'll link in the interest of fairness to that article as well. And uh, it's my time to remind you as I close risks and disclaimers. Of course, ETH is risky. The merge is risky, fam. All right. David's 95% certain, but like, you know, you never know. And of course, so is all of DeFi. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is The Frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.